This is Effed Up, a conversational podcast about injustice, true crime, and rosé. Season one of Effed Up is a story about the corruption in one state's crime lab. Listeners are advised that this podcast contains opinions that are our own. Before we start this episode, we need to clarify and correct some of the science we talked about in the last episode, because after it aired, Marilyn Miller, forensic science badass, messaged us to let us know that basically we're terrible scientists. She didn't say that in so many words, but we do need to be more clear and accurate about how we described luminol. This is the chemical that could be sprayed to identify a bloodstain pattern. She told us that you don't need a UV light to see a bloodstain pattern when using luminol. Because when luminol interacts with blood, it glows a sort of bluish color all on its own. So logically, you would need a semblance of darkness to be able to see whether or not there was a glowing bloodstain pattern emerging. Please note that this does not change the fact that we're still starting the luminol pit crew band. And now, back to your regularly scheduled effed up programming. I'm recording right now, just so you know. It's a test. I don't know how to quit you. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. How are you today? We have one British friend. Hello. I'm Jessica Borges. I'm Priya Hubbard. And I'm Keith Burke. He forgot who he was. (laughs) I was waiting for someone to point at me, and nobody pointed, so I just stared. (laughs) Blink. 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 (laughs) All right. So we're going to backtrack a little bit and remind you where we were in part one of The System is Fucked Up. Okay, so Greg Taylor had been convicted of the murder of Jaquetta Thomas. There was a ton of bullshit surrounding that conviction. A corrupt defense attorney. A second defense attorney who basically just took a nap during the entire process. Oh, Jim Blackburn, Greg's original defense attorney, by the way, was a prosecutor against Jeffrey McDonald. He won that case. Sometime after that case, Blackburn switched sides and became a defense attorney. Chris Muma, the woman who eventually became Greg's lawyer, as we're going to find out about in this episode, told us that Blackburn seemed to understand physical evidence. So for those wondering why Greg and his family would want to hire him, that was why. So Greg being sent to prison, his family, especially his dad, Ed Taylor, working tirelessly to try to help get Greg out. But unfortunately, they had simply run out of all options, and it was very unlikely that Greg would ever get out of prison. It was basically hopeless. What they didn't know, though, after Greg had been in prison for almost a decade at this point, was that there were some people who were starting to notice some serious shit was happening in the North Carolina justice system. And that brings us to part two of The System is Fucked Up, but just wants me to say The System is effed up. (laughs) So I'll say the system is effed up, but really the system is fucked up. Yeah. Let's just be real. Basically, it's a continuation of the first episode, but also the launching pad for our investigation into the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab. And let's get going. In the late 90s, there were two Innocence Projects established in North Carolina. The University of North Carolina Innocence Project and the Duke Innocence Project. So they're basically student-run innocent projects. Because when an inmate writes one group or person, they're going to write everybody. So the two projects were getting a lot of the same letters. There was a lot of duplication of effort. These people had the idea to start the Center on Actual Innocence to coordinate the work between the two innocence projects and sort of handle the case screening. 
Oh, that's smart. Just making it more efficient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Streamlining so, everything. Yeah. yeah. So it was incorporated in 2000 as the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. Does it just deal with death penalty cases? No. Okay, so it's just people that are like... So it's the... It's We're going to get into all of that. We will. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> yeah. I'm also in the future. No, but that's a great question. It was a really good question. Thanks. That's good the job. only one that I will say that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but let's back up a second. Before all this, there was a woman named Christine Muma. Chris. Woo! Yeah. And when she was younger, she'd been a juror in a death penalty case. She hadn't really thought much about the death penalty and its impact until then. At some point, Chris decided, after she'd had three young children, that it would be a super idea to go to law school. She studied corporate law, but that death penalty case where she was a juror stuck with her. And so she decided to write a paper about it. She interviewed her fellow jurors and defense lawyers, and generally this was sort of teeing up the work that she was probably destined to do. After law school, she ended up clerking at the Supreme Court for Chief Justice I. Beverly Lake for about three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And while she was there, it ended up resulting in a really close friendship. During this clerkship, she ended up seeing a lot of cases come through, and then she started to have some major concerns about whether some of these people were actually guilty. So, you know, reading the transcripts, looking at all the facts, she felt like if she was on that jury, she may not have voted the way that they did. Mm. And so she tried talking to more of the justices and the fellow clerks about it, and it became very clear that the question of guilt or innocence is really off the table after the cases leave the jury. Now, Chris had been reading all these cases and transcripts, but there was one case that really stood out to her, and she wanted to figure out how to do something about it, and other cases that might be like it. Because she thought, how can someone be in prison for 15, 20, 30 years for a crime he or she didn't commit? That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Aren't you so glad I asked? <laughs> well, she asked, technically. Well, I'm doing it by her. <laughs> so that was concerning to Chris. And with her background in corporate finance, where she was really focused on efficiencies and process and looking at how can we make things work properly, she was really surprised that the criminal justice system was set up kind of in a chaotic manner. Like there weren't as many like checks and balances as you would think and something that has the most extreme stakes. Yay, justice. <laughs> Yay. So in 2001, she found out that the professors from the two universities were starting this Center on Actual Innocence. And it just so happens that they were trying to find somebody to help run the center. And their paths crossed. And for some reason, she decided, hey, you know, let me run this center because she wants to, you know, help the people. Same. Totally can relate. She ended up finishing her clerkship and then she headed up the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. NCCAI. Yes, the acronyms. I know, there's these names. Yeah. It's a lot. joke. I feel like we should talk to Chris about rebranding. Because... <laughs> Chris, we have notes. <laughs> Not on what you actually do, just on how we give you the credit. How you do we reference it. what you do? Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence deals with policy, case distribution, and case litigation. The center's primary mission is to identify, investigate, and advance credible claims of innocence. So this is what you were asking before. Right. They want to obtain justice for people in prison, in prison for crimes they did not commit, and also for the victims of those crimes and for the actual perpetrators, like justice all around, no matter if it's good justice, bad justice, like whatever well, justice. Because yeah, I mean, if somebody's in jail for something they didn't do, someone that did do it is out. Yeah. Right. 
And we'll so get not, into that. It's not justice for the family. Right. So currently, they get about 650 applications per year, letters from either inmates or inmate family members. And when Chris receives all the materials, she makes a determination on whether or not they're going to take the case into further review or not. Further review means obtaining attorney files, trial transcripts, plea transcripts, looking beyond what's on the internet to the actual files of the case. Right. So she reads those, locates witnesses, and once they get through further review, if it's still looking positive, then it goes into investigation. An investigation is boots on the ground, going out, finding people, interviewing people. She's a detective. Get it, girl. She's yeah. In November 2002, Chief Justice I. Beverly Lake, let's remember that he's from the North Carolina State Supreme Court. He was Chris Muma's buddy. Mm-hmm. He establishes the Criminal Justice Study Commission following several highly publicized exoneration cases in the state. So he realized some shit was going down. Yeah. So this study commission, Justice Study Commission, reviewed police and prosecution procedures for factors that contributed to wrongful convictions. So it was just like looking into why these wrongful convictions were happening because there had been a few, which again, we'll get into. Within a few years, they realized that what was really needed for North Carolina was to establish an independent state Innocence Inquiry Commission. There's so many. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Crazy. I, I honestly probably should have been writing these down. It's a lot. <laughs> Nobody needs to write any of this down. They will come up again. Just and focus we'll on remind. driving, guys. Yeah. Just focus on driving. Yes. <laughs> and drinking. Or sitting on the couch. Wait, don't drink. Or rosé-ing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Rosé-ing? But it's, a, it's yeah. a lot of information to take in. It does come back into play, but we will remind everybody. It all comes together. When it's coming together or who these people are or whatever. Yeah. Within a few years after this criminal justice study commission was established, they realized that what they really needed for North Carolina was to establish another acronym. So they because <laughs> they don't have enough. No, can't get enough. They established an independent state innocence inquiry commission, and its purpose would be to review credible post-conviction cases in which the defendants and their advocates claim wrongful conviction. Okay. But so back to Greg and his father where we left off last time was we had mentioned that ed taylor had come to visit greg in prison told him you've reached the end of your options we've Mm -hmm. blown through all of the appeals we can't we have nothing left to do so around this time in 2006 he ended up going to raleigh to the north carolina general assembly hearing that would determine if this commission that priya was just talking about Mm -hmm. would actually be created because they were basically like lobbying for it to be created and the Innocence Inquiry Commission was established. So it, it got, it passed. This is a good thing. And the whole point of it was to help prisoners like Greg, who have exhausted their court appeals, but still have claims that they were wrongfully convicted. Right. It's like a second chance or a third or fourth or fifth or however many appeals that you've wiped through. It's basically like you have another chance that didn't exist before. Well, it gives you some hope right. that, yeah. that you may not have anymore for these people that like got fucked over. Yeah, and this ended up officially going into operation in 2007. So because everything is all sort of connected in North Carolina, one thing you should know is that the NCCAI, the the organization that Chris heads up, 
refers their cases to the Innocence Inquiry Commission. Yeah, once they've gathered like enough evidence and they feel like, okay, we have ourselves like a legit case, they bring it to them to basically push it to the finish line. Right, because I mean, it's essentially like another, since they run out of appeals and things, it's another court. What their website says is... The commission is charged with providing an independent and balanced truth-seeking forum for credible post-conviction claims of innocence in North Carolina. The commission is separate from the appeals process. There's a cat eating. Cat's eating dinner. <laughs> but that is not part of what they see on the website. <laughs> we but did move the litter box, by the way. It's not near our setup anymore. But the cat food is what right the food here. Is. <laughs> the food is, so we're doing great. So the commission is separate from the appeals process. A person exonerated through the commission process is declared innocent and cannot be retried for the same crime. Okay, so we've got the history and the acronyms down. Now let's get back to Greg Taylor's case. So when this Innocence Inquiry Commission was established, Ed had basically... Since he he went to the hearing with Greg's case, but he wasn't able to actually speak, but he was able to get a written document of Greg's case into the hands of someone who was actually having dinner with Chris that night, Chris Muma, to celebrate the fact that this is now in effect right, um, or going to be established. And Chris started reading Greg's story and just was kind of blown away. I mean, she's she realized that he had actually already applied to the NCCAI, but because they have such a huge stack of cases that have been piling up, they haven't had a chance to get through it all. Are they cast in the Kitty's on the scratching there? post now. <laughs> if you're following along at home. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> so when Chris was reviewing his case, she realized that there were a lot of red flags in terms of how his case was actually processed. Uh, you think? Yeah. And one of the biggest things that Chris had noticed right off the bat was the fact that Greg was with Johnny Beck that night. And first of all, they're not friends. They're not related. Johnny was black. Greg was white. And Johnny was a drug provider. Greg was a drug user. So they were just hanging out that night, getting high, doing drugs. And they got pulled into this like not so great situation. And it was clear from the access that Chris had that law enforcement was actually after Johnny Beck, but they were trying to get to him by way of Greg. And Greg was kind of like the pawn to get Johnny Beck. So that was kind of like, uh, Chris is piecing this all together and she's immediately like- like a big time drug dealer or something? Well, I don't know if he's big time, maybe. He just is one. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem like- they like they didn't really belong together other than they happened to be together that night to just exchange drugs and yeah. get high together. That's it. Yeah. <clears throat> they weren't out to like, you know, murder someone. Oh, and so now the cats as- moved on to the litter box. <laughs> <laughs> eat, scratch, poop. I mean, it's a pretty good gig. That's going to be a follow up to eat, love, pray, or whatever the fuck that <laughs> look is. Eat, pray, love. Yes. <laughs> That's probably a kid's book. We're going to do that project next. Yep. Genius. All right. So when Chris is going through his file, she finds out that Greg actually had multiple plea offers, like go home types of plea offers throughout the whole process. It's yeah. like you can literally just go home. You just got to rat out <laughs> Johnny Beck. Which is like, a, I would guess, a pretty big red flag. And but and Greg it's said like no. to not reduce the sentence, but to like wipe out the sentence, like commute the sentence yeah. entirely. Is like yeah. they really wait. wanted him pretty badly. So and also too, you would think that like 
If Greg <coughs> is guilty, don't you think he'd be like, uh, hell yeah, yeah I'll like, take that. Bye. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And even if he's not guilty, that still is attractive because you never know with the justice system as we're you know kind of exploring that right now. You don't always know if it actually has your back or not. And so you're risking, do I stay in here in prison for the rest of my life or do I just lie about this guy and get myself out of here right. and live the rest of my life? And so it's just crazy because Greg just remain consistent the entire time. Right. Well, because, I mean, it makes sense because, like, human nature is kind of fucked up. So yeah. you never know what people are thinking, what they're protecting, right. what they're hiding. Exactly. And they have all this That applies stuff. to, like, attorneys and, you know, people in the judicial system. Right. I mean, they're saying they have evidence, they have the blood stain, they have a dog that, what you know, says that there was a body in your car. Right. And how do you compete with that? So. Yeah. All, it's, all yep. it is you saying, no, that's not true. Exactly. All he had was his word, basically. From day one, he would never turn on Johnny back. He knew that him and Johnny had been together all night, and Johnny was just as innocent as he was, and the victim was last seen at 1 o'clock in the morning at her home. Johnny and Greg had been together since 10 p.m. that night until 6 in the morning, and they saw her body at about 3.30 in the morning, so there was no way that Johnny could have even been involved, and Greg wouldn't give him up, so... He turned down the plea before his trial. He turned down a plea during his trial. And he turned down an offer five years into his sentence. So they came after him a few times and he refused to give up, to give him up. So Chris just felt like, you know, if he had been involved in that murder, there's no way he would have passed up on any of these opportunities. Well, especially like, I mean, I get like before the trial and during the trial because you're like hoping that you don't get convicted. But like after five years... Right. Yeah. It makes you wonder, like, why are you not agreeing? You know, yeah. to just like, yeah, sure, it was him. Bye. I mean, that takes conviction. I don't know if I'd have that. I'd be like, yeah, no, it was totally them. Bye. <laughs> yeah. It's really kind of amazing how steadfast he remained throughout this whole process. Mm-hmm. So Chris was basically saying that whoever attacked Jaquetta Thomas, it wasn't like they were just trying to stop her for a little bit, or it wasn't quite like a struggle to have control for sexual reasons as the way they made it out to be during the trial. Uh, that's what they presented in his in his case. The way that Chris interprets it, the scene, is it, it was personal. It was a brutal, bloody attack, like a kind of I want you dead attack, like a lot, a lot of blood. Yeah. And there was no transfer of evidence from the victim to Greg or Johnny or the car. Like, there was no transfer from her to them. Even if you believe that that spot of blood on Greg's car was her blood, there could have been other explanations for how it could have gotten there. And there's no way that the blood came from the attack because it wouldn't have just been one spot. If well, you that's think what I'm saying. Like, I mean, you've seen enough movies and stuff that, like, you know, when there's a beating or when there's a what, like, whatever, like, like we're full of a lot of blood. Yeah. Right. It's so, like, not, like, one little. Yeah. I mean, just think about when you get, like, a stupid paper cut or something. Like, you bleed mm-hmm. a lot. Well, right. And, like, that Barbara chick, remember Barbara? The woman who picked that picked her, her up. Picked him and Johnny up. Oh, yes. I mean, we're going to get to her in a bit. But, like, I don't think that I would pick up somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning if they were covered in blood. Yeah, seriously. Which is, you know, if you look like a Jackson Pollock, like, you're, no, yeah. you're, mm-hmm. I'm good. Keep on driving. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. So, all of these things Call were kind of... Uber. Oh, Uber wasn't around. Oh, <laughs> uh, wait. <laughs> Basically, Chris felt like this is a case that I can take on because it's got enough red flags that I feel comfortable getting behind it. So on February 26 in 2006, the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence officially agrees to review Greg's case and it is a good day. 
The North Carolina Center on Actual Actual Innocence Innocence. actually gathers all of the necessary information for Greg's case. Okay. And on July 23rd, 2007, they refer Greg's case to the Innocence Inquiry Commission. The eight-member panel that the IIC has, you'll have like a judge, police officers, attorneys, victims, advocates, that kind of thing on the panel. Okay. So it's very just, if you will. But this whole Innocence Inquiry Commission process is still a slow process. And two years later, the IIC visits Greg in prison to tell him about a revelation in his case. Two years? Yeah. So August 5th, 2009. Like, I mean, it makes sense because you still have to like, there's red tape and you have to collect all the stuff and look through it. And So there's a revelation in his case. There was a confession from a man named Craig Taylor. You heard that correctly. Yeah. His name is Craig Taylor. Okay. This is for real. Wait, what? (laughs) A man named Craig Taylor confesses to selling drugs to Johnny Beck. That night. On the same night that Jaquetta Thomas was murdered. But more importantly, he confessed to killing Jaquetta Thomas. So, wait, this confession, (laughs) that's been there the whole time? It just came about. Yeah. This was, when did this happen? In 2009. So Greg has been in jail, in prison since. In prison. 1993. 16 years. Oh, I thought it was that like he confessed and they just put it in the wrong file because like the names were so close. No. Also, that's fucking weird. Yeah. What are the odds? Craig and Greg. Although I feel like those are fairly common names. So that was August 2009. Mm-hmm. September 4th, 2009, the In- Innocence Inquiry Commission. That's going to be really challenging the more rosé I drink, I yeah. just realized. Yeah. So the IIC votes 8 to 0. So all eight members to send Greg's case to a three-judge panel to decide if he's innocent. Well, yeah, because someone else... I mean, also, if I were Greg, I would go around that jail and punch anybody named Craig just <laughs> on principle. A month later, in October of 2009, Chris teams up with two other attorneys... Mike Klinkasum and Joe Cheshire, and everyone knows that this is Greg's last shot at freedom. Yeah, no pressure. So January 2nd, 2010, Chris is going through boxes of evidence that the Innocence Inquiry Commission was able to access. Again, they have the powers that they don't, so they got them some pretty sweet access. So she was going through the lab notes that the SBI, which is the State Bureau of Investigations, analyst Dwayne Deaver had taken on all the things that allegedly had the blood of Jaquetta Thomas uh-huh. and they had done test testing on all of those things. Okay. And she finds something in his notes that completely changes the case. And so she, she sprints down the hall to tell them what she's found. I'm not going to tell you what that is. Why? No. <laughs> this is a bullshit. You're going to have to wait. What? But well, what you can know now uh, is that. <laughs> but I want to. Okay. Just, just hang in there. Okay. It's around the corner. His report hadn't been shared with the defense. That's the most important thing you need to know for now. So what Chris found in that box was never shared with the defense in his original case. I think that's illegal. Mm-hmm. I've seen but that not. in like so many. Oh, it's not? Haven't I seen that in a bunch of things? Where- Let's keep going. Oh. <laughs> so the blood evidence was the only evidence that linked Greg with Jakarta Thomas's right, so body. the drop of blood. Exactly. And let's not forget that this was the evidence that was mentioned 17 times in Tom Ford's closing arguments yeah. in his original case. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. the evidence that sealed Greg's fate. Right. So Now, 
those of us who have seen the staircase have actually seen this in the staircase. Like, you're just not remembering right now. now. Not to the detail that we went into it. It's it's a pretty quick I moment. Remember, in the I whole... remember Dwayne Deaver, mm-hmm. like from the staircase, mm-hmm. but not. And they use Greg Taylor as an example of what like the Dwayne Deaver. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So February 9th, 2010, <clears throat> the evidentiary hearing starts. Greg testifies. He maintains the same that he has for the last 17 years that he's mm-hmm. innocent. Colin Willoughby, who's the Wake County DA, now claims Craig Taylor's confession was falsified. That's Craig Taylor. Craig. Why would? Why is this? Apparently, this all just seems like shady bullshit. Oh yeah. yeah. But also, the DNA or nope, not the DNA. Mm. Close. The DA, the DA <clears throat> investigated a confession of his. On another murder, oh. like that was like sort of his thing, and the DA withheld all of these confessions. Like he knew for a fact, even though like Greg's case was going forward because of this confession, right? The DA, it turns out, did not like the Innocence Inquiry Commission. Oh, he well, that's like- fucking nice. <laughs> so he wanted to either like bring it up in court. Oh, it was okay. to set them up. Like, he just waited until they got there. Yeah. and Greg, he was shit. Right. It was possible that he was going to let the whole process play out and Greg could potentially get out of prison. Although the DA didn't think that that was going to happen. But no matter what happened after the three-judge panel was hearing the case and deciding on the case, no matter what, then the DA could say, well, this guy is a known liar. So the innocence inquiry commission the process doesn't work because they didn't find him oh so johnny or Joni joyce a police search and rescue dog trainer thinking of Joni loves chachi sorry yes <laughs> although Joni loves sadie so do i so they are a police rescue dog trainer oh cute and they testify on sadie's behavior Sadie wasn't trained to do... Do you remember this dog? Sadie was on the crime scene. Oh, yeah. I was like, who's Sadie? Okay, I'm back. I'm right here. She was a very bad doggo, is what she was. Why? Because she found blood. I put quotations around that. She found blood on the truck. So, it turns out... Sadie was an asshole? No. Oh. Sadie wasn't trained to do what the police were wanting. So... They just lied? Her handler informed the Raleigh PD of this. So, like, the, the handler was like, uh, my dog is not going to do the specific things that you need her to do. She's not trained to do those things. So, the officers instructed the handler to try anyway. And Sadie obeyed her handler. The officers wanted a certain outcome, and they got it. But the reality here, guys, Keith, yeah, Sadie was a very good doggo. She was not a bad doggo. Okay, I'm annoyed now. Yeah. I mean, I've been annoyed, but I'm actually, like, angry. I know. When you involve (laughs) dogs, that's where you draw the line. Yeah. (gasps) Yes. And so, also, besides Sadie, the dog who testified, Barbara Ray also testifies, who, she's the woman that picked up Greg. I'm picturing Sadie putting her hand on a Bible. Her paw. Her paw. Her paw. You you said that last time, too. I did? Yeah. Oh. It was something like that. You were imagining her testifying. Aw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're consistent. (laughs) So Barbara gets up on the stand as well. And she was the one that had picked up Greg and Johnny that night, um, was partying with him, drugs, all that stuff. And she says they didn't have a weapon. 
She picked them up so close to the crime scene and they didn't have blood on them. And she said they were acting normal. And Priya, <laughs> Priya feels, Priya, why don't you so, say how right. you feel? I have to wonder how normal folks are acting at 3 a.m. after smoking crack all night. Mm. Like, this is true. Yeah. yeah, I think I feel like that's a valid question. <clears throat> yeah, it is. But also, I mean, back to your point, it's like uh, it, they have no blood on them, right? So, if you bludgeon somebody to death, like that, some of that would have got on you. It would have been on your shoe. It would have been everywhere. It, yeah. Even if you changed outfits, yeah. Which you don't think about at three a.m. when you're cracked out. No. You also don't have a spare change of clothes. Right, and they search the car and all that. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Oh, and by the way, Chris did tell us after listening to the last episode that the police had gotten a statement from Barbara. The prosecution didn't want to put her on the stand because, well, she wouldn't be super helpful to their case. And Dodd couldn't review Discovery when his eyes were closed during his power nap, so he had no knowledge of her. Oh, and also, Mike Dodd did actually cross-examine the prosecutor's witnesses. So at least he did something? Anyway, so basically, this was the evidentiary hearing that Greg should have gotten from the get. So he's he's getting this now. This is the trial that she he should have had in the first place. Yeah, because yeah, it sounds like this organization basically like does what should have happened in the beginning. That pretty much that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which proves that the system is fucked. Up. So also among the names that get up on the stand is Johnny Beck himself. And now you have to think, Johnny Beck is out of, he was in jail, he never made it to prison, he was in jail, and he was released a long time ago. But why did he, hold I I I feel like I asked this, but I don't remember if I did. How come he wasn't in jail? Because they both got convicted of her murder. Why did he get out? He didn't get charged. Why? Because he didn't have evidence on him. It was Greg's Because there was no evidence. Yeah. Except for that spot of blood. (sighs) Greg was the owner of the truck. This is huge because Johnny Beck has been free for some time and he's risking his own circumstance by getting back up on the stand because you just never know if somebody's going to try to flip something against you and use what you say against you. And he comes forward and says, Greg never killed Jaquetta Thomas. And, you know, not only does he get up there and say that, Ernest Andrews, who was the jailhouse informant Mm -hmm. from last episode, came forward and said, you know what? I lied. I was just trying to get a good deal. I was trying to get like shorten my sentence. He never admitted to me that he killed Jaquetta Thomas. I lied. So we have all of these amazing testimonies that are in favor of Greg's case. Mm -hmm. And at this point, they actually end up calling up Dwayne Deaver. The state calls up Dwayne Deaver, who was the SBI serologist who testified the who sorry who tested the blood evidence on Greg's truck. Right. So here he's questioned about the tests and his reports of the test results. Can we just hang on one second? Yes. And go back just for two seconds. For a lot of seconds. A lot of seconds. We're going to go back. So what happens is the inquiry commission process, the innocence inquiry, I see process. They investigate and they hear testimony from witnesses and from various other people to really identify what is going on with a a certain case. Right. So they talked to Dwayne Deaver. He testified that the reporting on his testing was all accurate and true, and he did things the right way. That's how he testified to the eight-member panel. Okay. So here, he gets on the stand, and he says... So this is going to circle back to something else we had just mentioned a few minutes ago as well. When he's questioned about his tests and the results of his tests, Uh it turns out that... 
They hadn't stopped at the preliminary presumptive tests that tested positive for blood. What Chris had found at the bottom of those boxes when she went sprinting down the hallway, so excited oh, for the evidence that she found, finally. were was evidence of the fact that Dwayne Deaver had conducted secondary confirmatory tests on the substances. And what these results said was that the tests were negative. It was oh. not human blood. What? Why are people... Ugh, people are the worst. Yeah, pretty messed up. Pretty effed up. And he, he casually... I stepped on you, sorry. Well, no, he legit lied about it. Well, let's just say, like, he... Well, I was saying casually, sarcastically. Right. Like, left that out of the report. Right. right. And they have a system that Pri is going to get into in a minute. A piece of about, shit. like, how the reporting of these tests work. Because typically, as with a lot of scientific experiments, you have to kind of do several. Because sometimes you get varied results. And the same, it's no different with testing blood. To detect blood at a crime scene, an array of tests can be used. So what they used was the phenolphthalein, and we talked about that in oh, the last episode. Oh, I've seen episode. that. That's on CSI, the, the, the blue spray stuff. That's luminol. Phenolphthalein reacts with hydrogen peroxide and actually turns pink, Keith. Damn it. Get it right. <laughs> <laughs> so according to the North Carolina Indigent Defense Services, presumptive tests are... Also known as preliminary tests, screening tests, or field tests, they establish the possibility that specific bodily fluid is present. There is a risk of false positives, as they may be overly sensitive. That seems like a flaw in the plan. But they provide initial information to determine what test to perform next Uh, and are used in combination. They're used in combination. With confirmatory tests. So they never just do these on their own yeah. in a vacuum. It's like right. there are always confirmatory tests. At Jakarta Thomas's crime scene, the SBI used phenolphthalein and a positive phenolphthalein reaction can be indicative of blood. And that's what they got. Okay. However, positive reactions are not limited to human blood. In fact, well, blood's, blood's blood. it's like, you know, when you take a pregnancy test and you get a positive, but then you're like, oh, whoops, I'm not actually pregnant. Then you, right. you get you paranoid t- and you take yeah. 12 more. Right. But wait, wait, wait. Yeah. You can get a positive reaction with cauliflower or broccoli. What? Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. If you test cauliflower or broccoli, you can get a positive. Does that, wait, what? Does that mean there's blood in <laughs> No. It means that phenolphthalein. I am never eating broccoli again. <laughs> I thought I was vegetarian this whole time. <laughs> Wait, that okay. I mean, it can detect a number of things, not just blood. That's why confirmatory tests are Well, one would hope that you could just on visual decide if it's blood or broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> Seems legit. Deaver performed these confirmatory tests, the secondary tests, okay. using what's called the Takayama test. The, the broccoli test. The, <laughs> making sure it's not broccoli mm-hmm. test. Yep. <laughs> so the Takayama okay. reagent, this is our CSI moment. I'm going to get rosé, you carry on. The, well, you're about to come up. Well, great! The Takayama reagent is added to a slide with a presumptive blood sample. So they took that spot of blood on Greg's test, put it on a slide, and then they placed it under a microscope. And if it's positive for it being blood, mm-hmm. there will be a visualization of dark red feathery crystals. Okay. Nice feather boa. Yep. Dwayne Deaver did not get those. What did he get? Broccoli? 
<laughs> yes. But we don't know what he got. We know that he didn't get a positive. That's what we know. Oh, this guy makes me angry too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Back to you, Jeff. Back to me. Now that I have rosé, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so back at the three-judge hearing, okay. a woman named Megan Clement, who's a forensic technician for LabCorp, testifies that she recently did DNA testing. So this is a different like lab than the SBI, right? To like, like oh, this was the independent one. Yes. Right. Okay. She, yeah, this is completely separate from the SBI. Yeah. So okay. she does her own testing of the DNA, which would have been great if we had done this years ago. We yeah, you know, when, when the murder in happened. 2003. No, in 2003, when Greg went to appeal right. asking for a DNA testing. So Megan comes in and she testifies. She tests the, she does DNA testing on the blood stain on the truck. Okay. And there were sufficient samples to do the testing in an accurate manner. So when she does her test, it comes out 0.00 evidence of blood. Couldn't be like, more not blood. Like it's for sure broccoli. <laughs> it's definitely broccoli. Like point. it could be sap from a, t- a tree. It could be. I mean, yeah, it's not blood. It's 0.00 blood. So at this point. How does this not make everyone in that room like irate? I'm sure. Like, I'm still this... angry right now, and we've heard the story a hundred times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's hard not to get upset about this. Ugh. But at this point, Deaver admits that in the lab, confirmatory tests were not required to be reported. How is that allowed? He says... So he's like, I did nothing wrong. I followed protocol? Yep. Fuck, your protocol is bullshit. Yep. Yeah. He says that the he was made to report things that way, the way that he did, and that those decisions on how to report things were made... Up by the people above his pay grade. It wasn't his place to meddle. He was following protocol. And so he did. No. How can that be the case? That like you like you're trying people for murder. How are you not required to like double check your fucking math? Well no, the math was double checked. Yeah, but they just didn't report it. Yeah. That's some bullshit. The lab actually had a policy. The policy said that you only have to report the positive test. So (laughs) if you have a Positive preliminary test, but a negative confirmatory test. You don't have to report the negatives, only the positives. What kind of? I had it for for your <laughs> fucked up. Super fucked up. Fucked up. Fucked up. Yeah. All of the ups. All of the ups. Yeah. yeah. Like you're essentially like you're cheating. Yeah. Knowingly cheating. Like it's in your fucking handbook. Hey, rule number one: just say what we want you to fucking say. Mm-hmm. Retest until you get the the answer that you want. Yeah, which is actually what that guy did in the staircase movie. When when I saw that reenactment, yeah, where like that girl was like dancing around and throwing blood up in the air and like doing the hokey pokey, and then yeah. that's how they, yeah, like oh that, that even, kind of even stuff. when I saw it, I'm like I'm like I'm not a total idiot, but like I know nothing about science, right? And like watching that, I'm like, well, that doesn't seem very scientific. No. And they're like fucking high fiving and like mm-hmm. yes, it yeah, just seemed all kinds of bullshit. Yep. Well, same guy. Now, everybody's gone up, everyone's testified. And here we are on February 17th, 2010, and Greg Taylor is finally free. Oh, thank God. Ugh. Nope, I don't want to cry. 17 years. Yeah. So. Ugh, that's horrible. Tom Ford, the DA. Not the designer. Oh, I have to call up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're bringing it today? Yeah. Great. Oh. 
So after this, he goes up to Greg and apologizes to him. And Wait, who apologized? Tom Ford, the okay. DA. He apologizes to Greg for, you know, 17 years of his life being spent behind bars. I'm need more than an apology. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. He shook hands with Greg as if it was the end of a soccer match. You know, it's like he was acting as though this is, you know, like good game, like good, good game, game, good, good game. game. Yeah. You know, but he Not basically... Not like, sorry, I ruined your fucking life? Pretty much. Okay, so I went on like a total rant in the document that we have. It's not a game, Tom Ford. It's someone's fucking life. And if you think it's a game, maybe being a prosecutor isn't the right fucking field yeah, for seriously. you. Okay. Mm-hmm. I stand by it. Mm-hmm. That's accurate. I'd and be I like, back me up. Don't fucking shake my hand. Like, yeah. Give me those 17 years back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Tom Ford was actually quoted in one of the videos that we've seen of him out saying that if I thought I put an innocent person in prison for 17 years, it would tear me up. I can tell you I haven't lost a minute of sleep over this. Yeah, because you're a piece of shit, Tom Ford. Not other Tom Ford. You rock. If only his name was Craig, he could just punch him. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to all the Craigs out there if you're suddenly getting punched. I'm sure you're a good guy, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) And Greg was freed nine years ago. So it's important to know that to this day, the police have not caught the murderer of Jaquetta Thomas. They They still think he did it. Greg and Johnny are the only suspects in Jaquetta Thomas's murder. I mean, so, her, her poor family has no, like, peace. Yes. And so, after Greg's case, there were public outcry, as you can imagine. He was a white middle-class guy. Oh. He was, like, everybody's brother, everybody's uncle, you know. Like, he's the guy that you feel would this would never happen to him. Right. Ever. But if it happened to him then people could believe that it could happen to them. Who else could, yeah. Word spread around North Carolina pretty quickly of this injustice. And so because of this, Attorney General Roy Cooper called for a complete audit of the lab. And he ended up bringing in two FBI experts to complete the audit. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into some of the effed up shit that they discover next time on Effed Up. This is all fucked up. Fucked up. I'm, like, angry. (laughs) It's only episode two. What am I going to be by the end? Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. At the end of each episode, we'd like to highlight the work being done for justice reform, science, and the prevention of wrongful convictions and provide information on where, if you're as fucking pissed off at hearing all of these stories as we are in telling them, you can throw some money at this or volunteer or whatever you can do. So the work that Chris does is incredible. The NCCAI, North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, is a nonprofit organization. And if you'd like to support the work that she and everyone involved in that organization does on a daily basis, their website is www.nccai.org. Please throw money at them. Let's just say Greg was not her only case. And as always, we'd love for you to join us on our social media, where we'll be posting links to our research, photos, and videos on our Facebook page. You can find us on all platforms, Facebook, Insta, and Twitter at Podcast. That's E-F-F-E-D-U-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you need to reach us via email, it's the same deal. FDUPpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, we don't like to shill for ourselves, but this podcast isn't about us. Fucked Up or effed up is about helping other people. But in order to do that, we need to get the word out. So if you have a moment to spare, please rate us on whatever app you use to listen to us. It will help us become more visible and help us elevate the voices of the victims and survivors who have been impacted.
If you have more than a moment and want to help us get the word out, please tell people, share links. The more people know about these injustices, the more changes that can be made. Let's create a fucking social injustice league and change the fucked up world. Effed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Done. Effed Up is executive produced by myself, Priya Hubbard, and Jessica Borges. Research and story is by me, Priya Hubbard. Executive Inquisitor is Keith Burke. Episode recaps written by Brandy Abbott. Social media hall monitors, Brandy Abbott and Paloma Diaz. Cover art is by Allie Kelly. You can find her work at Allie Kelly Illustrations on Instagram. That's A-L-L-I-E. K-E-L-L-E-Y illustrations on Instagram. Our music is composed by Allegra Borges. Executive in charge of support, Jeff Berg. Technical consultant, Randy Maringer of Maringer and Unger. On-air distractions provided by Nima and Newman, a.k.a. Newman. Additional investigations are provided by cat detectives, Monsieur Hercule Poirot and Captain Hastings. Special thanks to Chris Muma, Greg Taylor, Jill Garlick, Kara and Angel, the best neighbors in the entire world, Derek Kicker, Ian Golding for helping Derek, you're the best, the guys over at Guitar Center in West LA, seriously, this is who we're doing a special thanks to, because without you guys, nobody would be hearing us right now. Seriously. Thanks, guys.